One of my favorite Disney movies is the old classic Pinocchio that tells the story of a wooden puppet that miraculously comes to life in response to the wish of its creator, Geppetto. If you've ever seen this movie, you'll know that although Geppetto's wish is granted, the life of Pinocchio doesn't unfold the way he envisioned since Pinocchio is very quickly and very easily led astray. You'll probably also remember that at one point in this movie, Pinocchio is convinced by a couple shady characters to take a vacation to a place called Pleasure Island, where he and his friends are given the opportunity to indulge in anything they please without any adults telling them what they can and cannot do. At first, Pleasure Island seems like a dream come true for these boys, but as the plot unfolds, they discover to their horror that the island is cursed that they are slowly being transformed into donkeys that are destined for a life of slavery. You know, friends, one of the reasons I like that movie Pinocchio is because there are certain ways in which the plot of the movie reflects the truths of God's Word, in particular, the natural tendency of humanity to rebel against the Creator, to walk down the broad and easy path that promises pleasure, but ultimately leads us into slavery and damnation. Our enemy Satan has a successful strategy by which he desires to deceive and destroy the human race. And as we look once again this morning at this first chapter in the book of Daniel, we're going to see how these four young men were tempted by the pleasures of the world, but how they resisted that temptation through the grace and power of God. A grace, by the way, that is still available for the people of God today through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you did bring it, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to reread this entire chapter from God's holy and inerrant Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, incompetent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the, the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, two weeks ago, we introduced the book of Daniel, and we took note of the fact there's a repeated phrase here in this first chapter that, that breaks the verses into three main sections. The little phrase God gave that appears in verse 2, in verse 9, and in verse 17. Verse 2, we learn that God gave the exile as a just and righteous punishment for Israel's sin. In verse 9, we discover that God gave Daniel and his friends unusual favor in the eyes of their enemies. And in verse 17, we marvel at the influence that God gives these young men in a foreign land, influence that will outlast the very king and empire that once tried to destroy their faith and to rob them of their identity. In our introductory message, we focused our attention on the first appearance of that little phrase God gave in verse 2, where the inspired author introduces the main theme of the book as a whole, the theme of God's meticulous sovereignty over all things as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Here in the opening verses of chapter 1, we're given two different perspectives on the Babylonian exile. One perspective from below and another perspective from above. One perspective that zeroes in on the bare historical facts. Another perspective that raises our gaze towards the sovereign God who according to scripture works all things according to the counsel of his will. When we view these these events through the historical lens of verse 1, we see very clearly the credit for the Judean exile should be given to King Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked man who committed so many atrocities against the Jewish people, not the least of which was the kidnapping of these young men. But when we move from verse 1 into verse 2, the veil of history is pushed, pushed aside for a moment and we're enabled to see that none of these events were random or accidental. For we're told in that verse, it was the Lord himself who gave Kim jo- King Jehoiakim into the hands of the Babylonians. Friends, we're not even one paragraph into the book of Daniel. Already we're confronted by the inspired author with the sovereign God of the universe who can and who does use wicked men and wicked nations and even the devil himself to accomplish his good and gracious purposes in the world. But at the same time, we we know from Scripture that this sovereign God is also a holy and righteous God who always acts in such a way that he is never the author of sin. The key to unlocking the book of Daniel and understanding its ongoing relevance to our lives in the 21st century is to recognize Daniel's unshakable confidence in the sovereignty and goodness of God as revealed to us in the Word of God. 
I'm absolutely convinced, friends, this is the bedrock upon which everything else in the book is built. Divine sovereignty is the theme of this book. And so some will be offended at the teaching of divine sovereignty. Others, like our brother Daniel, will see this doctrine as the greatest source of comfort and confidence in a world like ours that is fallen and full of sin and suffering. For how else, brothers and sisters, could we ever count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds if we didn't believe that God had a plan for our suffering and if we did not believe that God is in control? Far better to trust in the sovereign God of Scripture who ordains every trial for a good and gracious purpose than to trust in the puny God of man's imagination who would really like to help me in my time of need but can't do anything about it because he's not in charge. Now, of course, that doesn't mean for a moment that we'll always understand the reason for our trial and suffering, but it does mean we can always put our trust in Father God. We can always believe that He is in control even when this world seems like it's totally out of control. Well, Daniel and his friends lived during a very dark period of Jewish history. It looked like the sky was falling. It looked like the world was quickly coming to an end. But Daniel's trust in a sovereign God kept his feet on the ground and his head in the game. Like the patriarch Joseph before him, Daniel knew that Nebuchadnezzar had planned the exile for his own evil purposes, but he also believed that God had somehow orchestrated these events for good. In this sense, Daniel is very much like another biblical prophet named Jeremiah who wrote a letter to the Jewish exiles a few years later encouraging them that God had a plan for their suffering in Babylon, that God had not forgotten about them in this strange and unfamiliar land. Just listen for a moment to these inspired words from Jeremiah 29, a letter from the prophet Jeremiah that Daniel and his friends would have most certainly read in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then a few verses down the page, we read what's probably the best-known verse in the entire book of Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Brothers and sisters, from one point of view, the Babylonian exile was a terrible punishment for Israel's sin. It was without question one of the darkest and most painful experiences in Jewish history. But when we see things from Jeremiah's perspective, we're brought to understand that the exile was also a glorious opportunity for the people of God. It was an opportunity for God's glory and mercy to be shown to the nations. It was an opportunity for the pagans to hear about the God who created them and the God who loved them and the God who would one day send a Redeemer to save them. You see, friends, God raised up the nation of Israel to be a missionary nation, to be a light to the Gentiles. And in the strange twists and turns of divine providence, one of the worst times in Jewish history became one of the greatest opportunities to put God's glory on display. I'm sure the temptation for all of the exiles in Babylon was to throw themselves a 70-year pity party and to wallow in anger and bitterness, but that is not what God intended for them to do. 
Get married and raise families in this land. Build your houses and plant gardens. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on behalf of your pagan neighbors, for in their welfare you'll find your welfare. See, friends, the exile is like a coin with two sides to it. We turn it one way and we see the divine punishment for Israel's disobedience, but we turn it the other way and we see a divine opportunity for Israel's mission. Well, Daniel and his friends had, a, had an important choice to make on that terrible day when they were taken away from their families and marched off to Babylon. They had a choice either to wallow endlessly in self-pity, to hang up their harps forever, to refuse to sing God's song in that foreign land, or else they had a choice to trust that the God that they had come to know and to love back in Israel had a plan for their time in Babylon and that this holy and righteous God was still in control. I have no doubt that many of the Babylonian exiles opted for the first choice and lived out the rest of their days in bitterness, anger, and self-pity, constantly looking over their shoulder at what might have been, perhaps even doubting the goodness and love of God. But praise be to God, this is not the road that Daniel and his friends chose to walk. Filled with the confidence that the God of Abraham is not somehow penned up within the temple walls or geographically restricted to the borders of Israel, these young teenagers are determined to glorify God in their exile, to faithfully follow God's plan for their lives, even if it wasn't the plan that they themselves would have chosen. And so here in this opening chapter, we do not encounter a band of demoralized, discouraged, self-pitying victims. We are introduced here in this chapter to four faith-filled missionaries who know that God is with them in their exile and who know that in spite of all appearances, God is in control. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how important it is that we follow in the footsteps of Daniel and develop a high and a biblical view of the sovereignty of God. Because if that conviction is not deeply rooted in your heart and your mind, the trials of this life will come crashing upon you like the waves of the sea and you will be crushed under the weight of them. Christians, if you don't live out your days in the conviction that God is in control of your life circumstances and that this God who is in control is always good and kind and that this God fights on behalf of His covenant people, your response to suffering will be anger and bitterness and self-pity. And in your anger and bitterness, it is even possible that you will curse God in your heart and that you will blaspheme His holy name. One thing's for sure, friends, you will never learn to sing God's song in a foreign land if you don't believe that God is with you and that God is for you and that God is in control. Daniel and his friends had to embrace a very uncomfortable reality, the uncomfortable truth that exile was actually an integral part of God's good and gracious plan for their lives. But what's really interesting here in our text is that King Nebuchadnezzar also had a plan for these young men in their future, a plan that was inspired by Satan himself and intended for their spiritual downfall. Now last week we spoke a little bit about the, the cruelty and the mania of this Babylonian king. And so it may be surprising here in verses 3-7 to seven that Nebuchadnezzar didn't throw these boys into a prison cell or that he didn't condemn them to a lifetime of hard labor or that he didn't torture them to death for his own sadistic pleasure. No, instead we see here in these verses that King Nebuchadnezzar intended to brainwash these young men with an all-expenses-paid vacation to Pleasure Island. 
Rather than destroying Daniel's faith through outright violence and coercion, the king instead wanted to destroy his faith through worldly ambition and the pursuit of pleasure, a strategy that the devil still uses today. Now, of course, we need to remember that at this point in Jewish history, the Babylonians had not yet destroyed Jerusalem. They had not yet deposed the king. Their intention at this early stage of the conflict was not to destroy Israel through military might, but rather to control them through political intrigue. And what better way to subdue and tame the Jewish nation than to brainwash and re-educated some of their finest young leaders, the sons of the Jewish nobility, who according to verse 4, were youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. Almost certainly, Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to take these young and impressionable teenagers back to Babylon and to win their loyalty through extravagant and luxurious living and to reorient their religious worldview with a full-ride scholarship to the University of Babylon. Indoctrination was the name of the game for Nebuchadnezzar. And once these young men had been fully acclimatized to the ways and the wisdom of Babylon, the king knew that they would become powerful allies, perhaps serving as puppet rulers back in Israel or as important government officials who would help advance the Babylonian agenda without the constant need for military intervention. Nebuchadnezzar was no dummy, and the strategy devised for Daniel and his friends is not all that different from the strategy Satan still uses today to lure us away from the unchanging truth of God's Word. First step in Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing scheme was isolation, taking these young men out of Israel, getting them away from all of the godly influences that God had graciously put in their lives. You want to know something, friends? The very best way for you and for me to drift away from the truth of the gospel and to lose our confidence in the truth of God's revealed word is to try to live the Christian life all by ourselves and to isolate ourselves from fellowship in a Bible-believing church. If you want to make yourself vulnerable to spiritual attack, if you want to slide into a lukewarm, comfortable, half-hearted Christianity, the best way to do it is to quit coming to church, believe the satanic lie that everything will be just fine between you and God if you read your Bible every now and then and listen to the occasional sermon on the radio. Isolation and withdrawal from the Christian community is one of the most dangerous moves we can possibly make. And that's why the Bible goes to great lengths to instruct us on the importance of fellowship in the local church and of church membership. The inspired author to the Hebrews reflecting on this, this truth says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our Heavenly Father knows that we are weak. He knows that we're prone to wander from the truth. And so He has wisely instructed us in His Word to devote ourselves to Christian community and to become active members of the local church. Well, Nebuchadnezzar intended to isolate these young men from godly influence, but somehow I don't think he was counting on the depth of spiritual friendship that existed between Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When faced with the grim reality of exile in a foreign land, Daniel and his friends did not despair and lose heart. Instead, they came together and they strengthened one another in the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, one of the practical lessons that jumps out out at us from this text is the importance of fostering close friendships with other believers, men and women who can keep you accountable in your walk with the Lord, who can encourage you to keep going for Christ even when you feel like giving up. Over the various chapters and stages of my life so far, God has been very kind and gracious to bring godly brothers into my life who have done for me what Daniel did for his friends. I haven't forgotten the feeling of spiritual isolation on the day when I said goodbye to my Christian parents and my Christian home and moved into residence at the University of Guelph. Making that transition to university felt a little bit like moving to Babylon. It was a strange and a foreign land where I often felt like a round peg in a square hole. I was now in a place that is not sympathetic to my views and convictions as a Christian. And because mom and dad are no longer there to enforce the rules, the temptation was strong to fit in and follow the crowd instead of standing alone and following the Lord. I haven't forgotten the day when my first year biology professor stood before the class and told us that evolution was a fact and that the religious creationists among us would not advance very far in the field if we did not change our mind. I haven't forgotten the unrestrained sexual immorality and experimentation that was a normal part of student life. I haven't forgot the continual drunkenness and partying and drug use and what it was like to stay in when all of my friends were going out. I haven't forgotten what it was like to wake up early on Sunday morning and head off to church while everyone else in the residence was still in bed sleeping off the previous night. The spiritual isolation was very real at university. The temptation to compromise was there all the time. But in His kindness and grace, the Lord gave me a close friend, ironically named Daniel, who encouraged me in the Lord, even as I encouraged him. And Dan and I became the best of friends in university. By God's grace, we came through those undergraduate years with our Christian faith even stronger and deeper than it was when we first went in. Now 15 years later, I look back at my time in university. I thank God for a godly friend like Daniel who reminded me of my identity in Christ, who encouraged me in the discipline of Bible study, and who spurred me on to a lifestyle of purity and holiness. Never underestimate the importance of a close Christian friend. And if you don't have a friend like that in your life, why not pray and ask that the Lord would bring a friend like that into your life? And why not be that kind of friend to somebody else? Brothers and sisters, as we live out our days by the waters of Babylon, let's avoid isolation by committing ourselves fully to the local church and by seeking out spiritual friendships with men and women who will spur us on to love and good deeds. Well, isolation was the first weapon in Nebuchadnezzar's arsenal, but secondly, we see how he sought to indoctrinate these young men with a worldview that went totally contrary to the word and the will of God. Verse 4 of our text, we see that Daniel and his friends were invited into the king's palace and were offered what would have been at that time a world-class education. For three years, these Jewish teenagers were to be educated in the language and the literature and the religion and philosophy of Babylon, reprogrammed to embrace the wisdom and philosophy of their enemies. Nebuchadnezzar understood the strategic importance of education in shaping the foundational convictions of a new generation, and in our day, we ought to recognize the same reality. 
Higher education can be a force for great good, but it can also be a force for great evil. You know, in the years following the Protestant Reformation, education of the laity became a top priority in many parts of Christian Europe with the end goal that everyone would be able to read and study the Bible for themselves and not to depend on the priest or the pope. That is the reason why most of the older universities exist today. They were founded by devout Christian men and women who wanted to train up a godly generation who wanted to see God glorified through all of the academic disciplines. These institutions were founded to promote Christian piety and learning, but tragically the vast majority have long since been hijacked by men and women who have no use for our God and who are seeking to build a secular society without God involved in it. And so, brothers and sisters, the challenge that we are faced with today is an educational system that is deeply corrupted and compromised by the world. And that is true whether we're talking about the publicly funded elementary and high schools or whether we're talking about our privately funded universities. Most of the educational institutions here in the West have become powerful instruments for indoctrination. It is not an exaggeration to say that almost all of the ideas that have proven to be most damaging to the Christian faith and to human sexuality and to the family unit have come down to us from the university. Just consider the fact that today in the 21st century, we no longer know the difference between a man or a woman. We no longer know who should go into the men's bathroom and the women's bathroom. And believe me, friends, these ideas did not just appear out of a vacuum. Now by saying this to you this morning, I'm not trying to suggest there is nothing good that can come to sending your children to a public school or university, nor am I trying to imply that we should completely withdraw from these institutions as a knee-jerk reaction. But what I am saying to you is that our eyes need to be open to the grave danger that faces our young people today and even more so to the grave danger that confronts the stability of our society as a whole. I hope that you understand Satan has an agenda to push in this modern culture and like Nebuchadnezzar long ago, he understands the strategic importance of our schools. And so Christian parents and Christian grandparents... What this means for us at a very practical level is that we need to be vigilant to do everything we can to educate our children in the ways of the Lord and to give them the tools they need to evaluate worldly philosophies and to discern the good from the evil. And if it's really true that our children are being indoctrinated into a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the Word of God, we of all people should be determined to saturate our young people with the unchanging truth of God's Word. Friends and parents and grandparents, we cannot afford in these days to delegate the training of our children to teachers in a public school or professors in a university. We must equip them with the truth of God's Word. We must prepare them to take a a courageous stand upon that body of truth and not to be greatly moved by the shifting sands of our culture. As Deuteronomy 6 says, we parents need to teach God's commands diligently to our children. Talk of them when we sit in our house and when we walk along the way and when we lie down and when we rise. 
We must keep a close eye on what television shows and movies our children are watching. We must know what books they are reading. We must know what video games they are playing, what websites they're visiting. Because the truth of the matter is, friends, if we don't train up our children in the way that they should go, someone else in this society will be more than happy to do it for you. Nebuchadnezzar did his best to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends through the finest education they could find. But in studying this chapter, it is so obvious to me that Daniel had strong and godly influences in his formative years. It's so evident, even though the text doesn't explicitly say it, it's so obvious that Daniel had parents back in Jerusalem who had done their duty and had done it well. Last time I mentioned that Daniel grew up during the reign of King Josiah. It was a wonderful time of revival in Israel when many of the Jewish people were turning back to the Lord and delighting in His law. And even though Daniel and his three friends were probably only 14 or 15 years old when they were snatched out of their homes, the law of God had already taken root in their hearts. The Holy Spirit had already done His sovereign work of regeneration. I'm not sure about you, Christian parents and grandparents, but sometimes when I look at the news headlines, when I see the horrible moral and spiritual state that exists in this country of Canada, I worry about my kids. I worry about how my children can navigate the pitfalls and the dangers of this life. But you know something? As I was studying the book of Daniel this week in my study, the Lord reminded me He is able. He's able to save our children. He is able to keep our children in His grace. He's able to plant their feet on the right path no matter what the world might throw at them. God calls us to be diligent to train our children to the best of our ability. And once we have have done what God has called us to do in the strength that He provides, we must entrust our children to His sovereign care. We must trust that He is able to keep them from falling and to present them blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a plan to isolate and indoctrinate. Thirdly, we see here in this text that he placed these four young men in situations where the pressure to compromise their stand from God would be almost overwhelming. And this comes through most clearly in verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. A few verses down the page, we're going to discover this matter of food and drink presented Daniel with an agonizing spiritual dilemma because he understood a decision to indulge in these delicacies would be a decision to defy the law of the Lord. Very likely, this food that the king was providing did not meet the dietary standards of God's law. Very likely, this food had been offered at some point to the false gods of Babylon and probably even in the presence of Daniel himself. And Daniel, being a young man who knew the Scripture well, understood that to partake of this food would implicate him in the worship of false gods and would therefore compromise his witness for the one true God. And so we read a couple verses later in verse 8 that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. How easy, how tempting it must have been for Daniel to rationalize and justify the eating of this delicious food, just as it's often easy for you and I to rationalize sin in our lives, and especially when it seems like an insignificant thing, and especially when we know that that no one else is looking over our shoulder. 
But here is Daniel, 15 years old, and he understands no sin against God is insignificant. He's a holy God. He's an all-seeing God, an all-knowing God. A God who is everywhere present. Brothers and sisters, how important in our ongoing battle for holiness that we resolve in our hearts and minds never to treat sin casually, never to delude ourselves into thinking that God doesn't really mean what He says in His Word. Right at the beginning of this time of exile in Babylon, Daniel makes a pivotal decision. There are lines he will not cross as a follower of the Lord. And friends, I'm inclined to believe that this decision about the king's food was the most important decision that Daniel ever made in Babylon. For if he had made this one compromise at the very beginning and found a way to rationalize sin, he would certainly have made even greater concessions further down the road. And eventually, step by step, through a series of small and seemingly insignificant compromises, Daniel would have found himself eventually in full conformity to the philosophy of Babylon and not in conformity to the ways of God. Christian friends, as exiles here in the city of man, you and I desperately need to develop convictions that are rooted in the Word of God, and we desperately need to know where the lines are to be drawn. We must learn, brothers and sisters, how to be in this world, but not of the world. For the Bible tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Christian life was never intended to be an easy and comfortable life, but thankfully our God in His grace has not left us to our own devices. He has given us His Word. He has given us His Spirit. He has given us the fellowship of the local church. And that is really everything we need. Well, the fourth and the final step in Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing strategy was to rob these young men of their identity by taking away their Jewish names and replacing those names with Babylonian ones, names that reflected the false gods of Babylon. Could probably preach a whole sermon on this one point, brothers and sisters, for I'm convinced that one of the most deadly strategies that Satan uses against the people of God is to tempt us to forget our new and our true identity in Jesus Christ. How important to remember the precious truth of 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, friends, when the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, when He draws us effectually to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, the Lord in His grace gives us a new identity. At one time we were His enemies. We were orphans. We were objects of His wrath. We were slaves to sin. But now in Jesus Christ, we are God's friends. We are God's children. We are God's treasured possession. We are God's redeemed people. He has given us a new identity that reflects the image and likeness of the Heavenly Father. But all too often in this life, we forget these precious truths and we begin to consider ourselves in a worldly way. And so sometimes along the path of life, Satan points his condemning finger of us at us and he reminds us of the past and we believe the lie that we are still under condemnation when God's Word declares that we're free in Christ. And sometimes when we fail in our pursuit of holiness and sin against God, we believe the lie that Jesus' sacrifice is not sufficient for our sin and that we must do something in order to earn God's love. And sometimes, instead of finding our true identity in Christ, we instead root our identity in other things, such as our career, or our spouse, or our children, or our finances, or our natural abilities. 
Identity theft is not only a problem in the world of commerce, it is a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that we need to take every thought captive and make those thoughts obedient to Jesus Christ. We must fight against the lies of the enemy with the revealed truth in God's Word. We must continually renew our minds. Babylonians called these boys Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these four boys never forgot who they really were, and neither should we forget who we are. Way back in verse 2 of our text, we considered the first appearance of that repeated phrase God gave. We saw that behind the plotting of this evil king lies the hand of a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And we've come to see now that the testing of these young men was not an accident or a cruel twist of fate. It was part of God's good and gracious plan for their lives. It was something that God had ordained for an even greater purpose. Indeed, he had ordained it for a missionary purpose. Nebuchadnezzar had planned it for evil, but God had planned it for good. And that will become more and more evident as we work our way through this book. Well, this brings us then to the second appearance of that little phrase God gave in verse 9 of our text. And I promise you, the last two points will be much shorter than the first. Verse 9 says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In response to Daniel's courageous decision not to defile himself with the king's food, it would have been very easy for this high-ranking official to report Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar and to have him thrown in jail or perhaps even killed. Daniel knew at the outset of his at the outset his stand for God might cost him his life, but yet God chose in this situation to give him favor in the eyes of the eunuch. And as an alternative to eating all of those mouth-watering steaks and pork chops and wine, Daniel requested that he and his friends become vegetarians for a period of 10 days and then be evaluated according to their physical appearance. I think if I had to become a vegetarian for 10 days, I'd lose the will to live. Now friends, we've got to understand the Babylonian official who allowed this this experiment to happen, this is a miracle in and of itself. This man had absolutely nothing to gain from allowing this experiment, and he had everything to lose if it went wrong. And so in that fact alone, we have evidence of God's favor and divine intervention. But the even greater miracle comes in verse 15, when we discover that at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. You know, in our culture today in North America, being thin is usually seen as a sign of good health. But back in the ancient world, it was the other way around as it still is in some cultures today. In ancient Babylon, being overweight was a symbol of wealth and status. And as most of us know from experience or intuition, eating a steady diet of vegetables and water is not exactly the best plan to gain weight. I had to laugh This week, a few years ago, a popular pastor from the States developed a diet based on this particular text in the book of Daniel and published a best-selling book called The Daniel Plan that was intended for people to, to lose weight according to the biblical design. Well, friends, I hate to burst your bubble if you spent money on that book, but the true Daniel Plan was never an attempt to lose weight by eating vegetables. It was an attempt to gain weight by eating vegetables. And once again here in the text, we have a visible, tangible sign. God is at work. God is in control. 
Can you see what's happening here in the text, brothers and sisters? The true God of Israel is being glorified in the eyes of the pagans and all of the credit is going to Him for Daniel wants us to understand and he tells us that God alone is the one who grants favor and grace. The third and final appearance of that little phrase God gave appears in verse 17 of our text. And of the three we've considered this morning, I think this one is my favorite. In spite of all of the challenges that Daniel faced in exile, all of the difficult decisions he needed to make, God showed him incredible favor by giving him and his friends unusual influence in the palace of the king. But what I find most remarkable here is the tidbit of information we're given at the very end in verse 21. Look again at that verse. It says that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now that might seem like a meaningless, boring fact of history to you until you come to realize that King Cyrus lived and reigned about 70 years after these events had taken place. And that King Cyrus was the king of another empire which rose up and defeated the Babylonians. There's a point here by including that verse, and the point is simply this. The nations, the kings, the authorities of this world will rise and they will fall. But God's kingdom will last forever. As I said to you last time, this is not, in the final analysis, a cute bedtime story about a courageous young man named Daniel. This is a story about Daniel's God. This book is a testimony to the God who gives trials, to the God who gives favor, to the God who gives influence according to His sovereign and holy will. And as Daniel, the author of this book, would have all of his readers understand, it is always for the good of God's people, and it is always for the glory of God's name. Amen.